Well, if you will, open with me in your Bibles to the book of Zephaniah, chapter 2. Zephaniah, chapter 2. So we've been making our way through the book of Zephaniah. We came last week to chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, where we saw this call in, in light of warnings of judgment, this call to repent, to seek the Lord, to seek humility. We looked at all of the... Uh, different elements of what's involved in repentance last week. We, we considered the urgency of the matter. If you, you remember that before God's judgments come, we must humble ourselves now. And as we pick up this morning in chapter 2, verse 4, and, and we'll read down to verse 15, basically what we're given here are, are further motivations for why we should repent, why the people of God then should repent. And, and these further motivations have to do with more warnings that are to come upon uh, the whole world, more judgment against all of the nations that Judah herself will not escape. But then also, as, as I've mentioned before, there are interspersed throughout these sweet promises of a greater day to come, a day of restoration to come for the people of Judah and, interestingly enough, for the very nations who come under God's judgments. And so that's what I want us to look at together this morning. We will begin by reading in Zephaniah chapter 2, picking up sort of in the middle of the chapter in verse 4, and we'll read down to 15 uh, together. So Zephaniah writes here, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and and he says, for Gaza shall be deserted, and Ashkelon shall become a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon, and Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to you, inhabitants of the seacoast, you nation of the Carathites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. And you, O seacoast, shall be pastures with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah on which they shall graze, and in the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening. For the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted My people and made boasts against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah. 
A land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. The remnant of My people shall plunder them and the survivors of My nation shall possess them. This shall be their lot in return for their pride because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be awesome against them for He will famish all the gods of the earth And to Him shall bow down, each in its place, all the lands of the nations. You also, O Cushites, shall be slain by My sword. And He will stretch out His hand against the north and destroy Assyria. And He will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. Herds shall lie down in her midst, all kinds of beasts. Even the owl and the hedgehog shall lodge in her capitals. A voice shall hoot in the window. Devastation will be on the threshold, for her cedar work will be laid bare. This is the exultant city that lived securely, that said in her heart, I am and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become. A lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her kisses and shakes his fist. Let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Well, Father, throughout this book, this word of prophecy of Zephaniah, we have seen that you are the one true sovereign God over all nations. And you are a righteous and a holy God. And you have revealed that there will be no ungodliness and no sin that will go unpunished that all sin will be dealt with in Your justice. We have seen that that You have warned all of the nations of the earth that if they remain in their ungodliness, they will experience the full wrath of God. And You gave warnings to Your very own people, the people who were called by Your name, who lived in their own security, believing that by virtue of being the covenant people of God, by virtue of being the people of the God of Israel and having the temple in their midst, that how they lived did not matter. You you warned even them that because they had perverted your worship, because they had adopted the ways of the nations, they too would come under your judgments. And yet also, we see in this book, as we see even in this very chapter, that your anger will not remain forever. That the day was promised long ago when the remnant of Judah would be restored back into their land. A day would come when they would possess all the nations, and a day would come when all of the nations who would come under your judgment would bow the knee to the King. 
And so, Father, it gives us a great hope that even as we look around in our sin-sick world this day, we know that You, in Your sovereignty, will ultimately prevail. That Your righteousness will reign on the earth. That You will establish Your kingdom and the nations will stream to worship You in the city of God and to worship You in their very own places. And it gives us hope and it gives us an encouragement to continue on in our walk with Christ. And so I pray, Lord, that this day You would both correct us in our sin and help us to see the reality of judgment to come but also, Lord, that you would encourage us by these promises. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. When we were in Malawi about a month or so ago in the lower Shiri, in that area, we could look around and we could see that on every single side of us, from the north to the south, from the east to the west, we were surrounded by mountains. They were all over the place. The Lower Shiri, of course, being in essence just this large valley that stretches for miles. We were, we were in the bottom of it and we could see everywhere around us the mountains. And of course, from a great distance, when you looked at these mountains, they they looked as if it was just you know, one mountain in each direction. One mountain in the north, one in the south, the west and the east. But then as we were leaving the lower Shiri and making our way back to Zomba and back in the direction of the mountains, the closer that we got, the closer we could tell that we were not just looking at one single mountain. The closer we got, we could see that there were actually many mountains now with many different peaks and many different valleys. The closer we got, we could see all of the detail of the trees within the mountain and we could more clearly see the, the different shades of green. The closer we got, we could see that there were people who were living in these mountains and they were burning all kinds of different things. You could, you could drive along and you could just see little clouds of smoke where they were burning. We could see all of the details of the mountains the closer we got. So all of these things were details in the mountain that we couldn't see from so far away. But we had to get closer. The, the distance, of course, gave us the big picture. If we weren't so far away, we, we wouldn't have been able to see just how vast these mountains were. They gave us the big picture. But the closer we got, we were able to see and to recognize all of the finer details. I used this image we were in Malawi and, and teaching the men there, and, and I think it's fitting we think about our own passage today. But in many ways, this, this illustration, this idea of viewing mountains from a distance and then close up is a very 
helpful way to think about many of the prophetic writings throughout the Old Testament, which, of course, again, includes our very own passage this morning. The prophets often spoke of things to come as if it were one large picture. And from a distance, it's, it's hard to see how all of the details are, are going to come together. So, so, for example, you can just think about this for a moment. How do you fit together the fact that the Messiah in the book of Isaiah will be the son of David and of the increase of his government, there will be no end. His reign will be extended over all of the earth and it will endure forever. How do you fit that together with what we find later in Isaiah 53? That this very same man, this servant of the Lord, will suffer, will die, will be crushed by the very hand of God. He will be a sacrificial lamb led to the slaughter. How do you put that all together? Or in Hosea chapter 1, verse 9, there we read that God is pronouncing a judgment against the people of Israel. And He's saying to them that they are not His people. No longer will they be His people and no longer will He be their God. And yet, in the very next verse, He promises that the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea. In other words, in the very next verse, He promises to the present generation that the promises He made to their forefather Abraham long ago will not cease. He will fulfill them. And they themselves will fill the earth. Figuring out how all of these details, how all of these things that God said would happen, would ultimately come together, was of course no easy task, even for the Old Testament prophets. In fact, the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10-11, to he says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. With respect to Christ, they understood that He would suffer. And they understood that He would be glorified. They understood the big picture. They could look at the large mountain from a distance and see all of these truths at once. The Messiah will suffer. The Messiah will be glorified. But with respect to who and when these things would happen, and we might even add how all of these things would come together, they also longed to know. 
They searched and inquired carefully. They read the works of the other prophets. They read Genesis through Deuteronomy, the works of Moses. They studied them. They tried to fit them all together. We can think of even how they compose their own writings. They are, they are bringing all of these things together to try and understand this big picture. Well, in our passage this morning, we come to another similar mountain that has many peaks and many valleys. Initially, it's hard to understand how all of these things are supposed to come together. We find the nations here being judged and completely destroyed, being turned into Sodom and Gomorrah where nothing remains in the land. We find this judgment serving as a warning also to the people of Judah that that they are to take note that they likewise will not escape these judgments. In fact, these judgments against the nations assume that Judah likewise will be judged because we, we read about Moab and Ammon, that what are they doing? They are taunting the downfall of the nation of Judah. It's a warning to the people of Judah as well. And yet, in this very same passage, we also find promises that a remnant of the people of Judah will be restored. And perhaps even most striking of all, we find that the nations, the very nations who in God's judgments are decimated, these nations likewise will be worshiping God from all over the world, each in its own place. This is, this is the big picture here. And all of this is to serve as further motivations for the people of Judah, indeed for all of the people of God to humble themselves, to repent, and to seek the Lord. The Lord will be the just victor in the end. There is no rebellion against Him that ends with our own victory. He will win. He will conquer. And all of the peoples will worship Him. And so the implication is that we are to join in that worship now. We are to repent of our sins and seek Him now. As we look further motivations for repentance, all of these these warnings and these promises, I want to try and get closer to the mountain and see all of these details and how they come together. And I want to consider this in three different parts. So first, I want you to notice with me throughout this passage that God makes it absolutely clear that no ungodly nation will be spared from His righteous wrath. 
But that is one main point that we have to understand is being communicated in this passage. There will be no ungodly nation, no ungodly people who will be spared from His righteous wrath. Now, this begins, we see, in verse 4. Zephaniah has just spoken about the coming of the day of the Lord. As we saw last week, the day of God's judgment and the need to repent before it comes. And then he describes from verse 4 down to verse 15 the many effects of the day of the Lord. The many nations who will likewise perish because of the day of the Lord. In verses 4-6, to Zephaniah turns his attention to the people who were to the west of Judah on the seacoast, the, the Philistine nation. And he singles out four Philistine cities in particular. Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, and Ekron. And he speaks here of how these people are going to be utterly destroyed. He uses, in fact, a word play with the first and the last Gaza and Ekron. It's kind of hard to bring it out in English, but basically there's a word that sounds like Gaza that means to destroy or destroyed. And then there's another word in Hebrew that sounds like ekron, that means to, to uproot. And, and Zephaniah is saying, this is what's going to happen to these nations. Gaza, in essence, is going to be Gaza. And ekron is going to be ekron. They're going to be destroyed, destroyed uprooted. There's going to be nothing left. Whereas these cities were once populated, whereas they were the centers of all of the coastal trade, whereas they were the home of many merchants and and they were wealthy and powerful, when God brings His judgments against them, Zephaniah is saying, there will be nothing left. There's going to be no great, powerful, wealthy, merchant cities. If you look at verse 5, he then speaks of the Carathites, which is just another name for the Philistine people. Carath there uh, refers to the island of Crete, which is where the Philistines had originally come from. And so we might even call them here the Cretans. Right? We're probably more familiar with the Cretans from uh, the book of Titus. But this is where the Philistines had originally come from. So, so he's saying here that the Cretans will be destroyed until no inhabitant is left. And then in verse 6, he describes the nation which again was highly populated. He says that the nation will be turned into pastures where shepherds and their flocks can roam. In other words, there's going to be nothing there. There's going to be no trade. There's going to be no development. No houses or palaces or temples or markets. It's, just, it's going to be open land. It's going to be where, where sheep 
and, and shepherds roam. Just a field with, with nothing left except for grass for the sheep to eat. His judgments are going to annihilate the people who are to the west of Judah. Then, further down in verses 8-10, to God his attention to the people east of Judah. The nations of Moab and Ammon. Of all nations, these two should have been the closest allies to Judah. They were descendants, of course, of, of Lot, Abraham's nephew. And so, by blood, they were, they were kinsmen to the Israelites. They bordered the nation of Judah. They, they should have been close allies together. But for pretty much their entire history, they have been enemies of God's people. And when nations like Assyria destroyed Israel and fought against Judah, they would frequently ally themselves with Israel's enemies and boast over their downfall. And so God says here that they too will be destroyed. In verse 9, the Moabites and the Ammonites, who again, if you'll remember from the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, they only existed as nations due to the mercy of God in rescuing Lot and his family from the judgment against Sodom and Gomorrah. The only reason these nations existed was because of God's grace. But now, these nations will no longer be spared. They are going to suffer the same fate as what came upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Their land is going to become so decimated that nothing but weeds will grow in it. And just as Sodom and Gomorrah became uninhabitable, so also will Moab and Ammon become waste forever. And God, in this passage, explicitly states why this judgment is coming upon them in verses 8 and 10. It's because they taunted the people of Judah. It's because in verse 10, they were full of pride. And they boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. They were just like the prideful Assyrians. We'll see in just a moment. They were just like that, that prideful king who, who just, because he could, decided to spread his empire and conquer many nations. They were full of pride. And so God declares that a judgment is coming upon them. They too will not escape. Then in verse 12, God turns His attention to the south of Judah. To the Cushites. The nation that was just south of Egypt. He has only a brief word for them, but the message is still the same. They shall be slain by the sword. The enemies of Judah to the south likewise will not be spared from God's judgments. And then lastly, he turns his attention to the nation north of Judah, to the Assyrians. 
the Assyrians likewise will suffer the same as the other rebellious nations. They too, we find, will become a desolation. They too will become a dry waste like the desert. They too, because of their pride, because they had exalted themselves, they will be so completely destroyed that essentially desert animals will roam around throughout all of their territory. And we see all throughout this passage that God speaks of all the nations that surround Judah. From the west to the east to the south to the north. And he says that none of them will be spared from His wrath on the day of the Lord. And for a certain sense in which God raising up the Babylonian Empire was at least a partial fulfillment of these very judgments. But I think particularly because of some, some of the things that we'll see in a moment when we look at these promises that are in this text as well, the ultimate, the final fulfillment of these prophecies is still yet to come. But I want you to recognize at this point, though, that what I want you to see here is that no ungodly people will escape the wrath of God. They will not be able to say, to, to say that no person in any nation will ever be able to say to God when His judgments come, we didn't have your word. We didn't have your law. Neither did these nations. They were not a people who had the covenant of God. They were not a people who had the, the Ten Commandments of the Lord. They had not entered into a covenant with God as, as the people of Israel had done. This was not an excuse that the nations then could give, and it's not going to be an excuse that anyone else will ever be able to give. God. You did not give me your word. You did not send a Christian to, to share the hope of the gospel with me. You kept me in the dark. No one will be able to render this excuse to God. God will hold them all accountable for the same reasons that He holds these nations accountable. Not because they transgressed against the law that they didn't actually have. No. Why does He hold them accountable here? For their pride. For their arrogance. For all of their idolatrous practices that they knew by the light of conscience. By being made in the image of God were wrong. For their bloodthirst for their desires for war. Not be able to say to God, God, I never knew of You. Because their judgment will not be on the basis of what they did not know, but on the basis of what they knew by the light of their own conscience that God has given to them. You see, friends, all people 
All people have a knowledge of God. There is no such thing as atheists. They don't exist. You can say you don't believe in God all you want, but God does not allow men to be without knowledge of Himself. We all know Him. We know Him from our birth. God has revealed Himself to us. This is something that we have seen in, when we read earlier from Romans chapter 1. God has placed a certain knowledge of Himself in all people. He has placed eternity, the knowledge of eternity, in the hearts of all men. And even if men have no ultimate reasons or foundations for their particular morals or values, they still have morals and values because they can't escape them by virtue of being made in the image of God. This is one of the reasons why you often hear even the atheist who denies the very existence of God, who denies all meaning in creation. What do they want? They want ethics. They want values. They want good laws. Why? That makes no sense in a godless world. We might as well eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. There is no ultimate basis for any of that. And yet still, they want it. We want it. We want morals. We want values. We want standards. We want laws. We want righteousness. Why? Because God has placed it within us. He has made us in His image. And to suppress all that knowledge that God has revealed to us about Himself and about our own sinfulness, to deny it and to deny God is the height of the arrogance of a creature. It is absurdity and foolishness. And men will be held accountable for suppressing all truth that they have known in their unrighteousness. As we read again from Romans 1, therefore they are without excuse. And there will be no excuse to be given on that day. So, this is one point that we see throughout this passage that all of the godly nations will be judged by the righteous judgments of God. But there are two others that I want us to consider this morning. And both of these have to do with promises that are made here. And the first promise we find here is the promise that God will restore the humble remnant of Judah. God will restore the humble remnant of Judah. But so far, we have seen many pronouncements of judgment to come against Judah. The near future for Judah was not going to be a pleasant one. They would come under God's wrath and they too would be destroyed. Often the case that because of these many 
judgments. You know, pe- people tend to look at the prophets, like a prophet like Zephaniah, as if they were nothing more than preachers of doom and gloom. Right? There's all this fire, literally fire and brimstone that's being pronounced all of these people. Of course, as we see here, and, and as we will continue to see throughout the rest of of Zephaniah, the prophets were also preachers of the greatest hopes. They were, they were a hopeful bunch, particularly when it came to the long game. We might not say Jeremiah was very hopeful for the next 10 or 20 years because he knew what was coming, but for the long game, he knew. These prophets were hopeful. And they were hopeful because they saw beyond the judgment to come. They saw beyond the exile. And they understood from the Word of God. They understood from from books like Deuteronomy in chapter 32 that in essence in a song describes the whole history of Israel to come. This day where they will go into exile and then God will restore them. They, They understood from His promises that God would not completely cast them off. He would restore them. And here, Zephaniah prophesies of that very restoration. In verse 7, if you look with me there, after the judgment against the Philistines is given, Zephaniah says that the seacoast, which is again the land of the Philistines, the seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah on which they shall graze. Houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening. What is promised here is a day to come when Judah's borders will be expanded and the promise of land that was given to Abraham so long ago will be fulfilled. Moreover, in verse 9, after Moab and Ammon is prophesied to become like Sodom and Gomorrah, God gives another promise to the remnant of Judah. They will possess not just land, but even their enemies. They will possess the peoples. The end of verse 9 says, the remnant of My people shall plunder them and the survivors of My nation shall possess them. Now, some have argued that these promises were fulfilled in Josiah's day because there's some evidence that Josiah did make inroads into Philistine territory during his reign. And of course, we remember from chapter 1, Josiah a close contemporary to Zephaniah, probably beginning his reforms 10, 15 years after Zephaniah's prophecy. So some have argued that that these things were, were fulfilled in Josiah's day. But Josiah, I would argue, in his reign cannot be the ultimate fulfillment for these promises because for one thing, it wouldn't be a very hopeful promise if the seacoast became Judah's possession during Josiah's reign, only for them to lose it again within the next 20 or so years when they're sent into exile. right? 
You're given the land and then it's taken back, right? In just 20 or so years. Another reason, though, is that these promises are given, you'll see here, to the remnant of Judah. The remnant of Judah. Not the whole nation as it existed in Josiah's day. And the remnant throughout the prophets is often a reference to this smaller group of believing Jews who lived within the nations of Israel and Judah. It's what we might call, based on other New Testament passages, the true Israel. right? The, the Israel within Israel. Those who are humble before God. Those Jews who truly believed in God and in His Messiah. It is to these true believers, it is to these true people of Judah that these promises are given. And then additionally, one one further point is that we know that these promises have to have a fulfillment beyond Josiah's day. Because verse 9 says that they are given to the survivors of my nation. Right? This speaks of the generations of Jews that would come after the exile, who survived the destruction of Judah, who survived the exile. In other words, the promise is that sometime after the exile, the believing remnant of Judah will receive the inheritance of a promised land and will even receive the nations, their enemies, as their own possession. Now, before we put all of this together and try and understand the different parts of the mountain, I want us to consider this third promise that we find in this passage also. So in addition to the fact that God promises He will restore the remnant of Judah, Zephaniah also speaks of a day to come when the God of Israel will receive true worship from all of the nations in their own lands. Notice with me what verse 11 says. Moab and Ammon is being referred to here, but but they are only an example of what will happen to all of the nations. Verse 11 says, the Lord will be awesome against them. And and here the the word for awesome is the same word for for fearing. To to be afraid of something. So I think the CSB rightly captures the idea when it says that the Lord will be awesome terrifying to them when He starves or famishes all the gods of the earth. And how's He going to do this? How's He going to starve all of these gods over the whole earth? Well, He does so through His judgments against these nations. If He turns these nations, these ungodly peoples, into barren wastelands, Deserts that no one lives in. Makes them complete desolations as He did with Sodom and Gomorrah. Then of course, there will be no resources 
to bring offerings to all of these false gods. That's one of the things that you would do in the religion of this, these idolatrous cults. You would, you would bring all of these different food offerings from the land in the hope that that particular god would bless you in response. It's the, probably the earliest kind of prosperity gospel. Right? If, if I give a thousand dollars, I'll get a hundred thousand back in return. Right? That, that's, that's, mo- that, that, that's a modern form of ancient paganism. That's what these people were doing. And God's going to cut all of that off. When He brings His judgments against these nations and destroys them all, there will be no offerings being given to these gods. And so what will happen? The gods, the false gods, will starve. They will starve as a result of His universal judgment against the earth. That same fiery judgment that chapter 1 verse 18 spoke of where the whole earth is fully and suddenly consumed. The Lord will terrify the earth by His judgments. Notice how the verse continues. And to Him shall bow down each place all the lands of the nations. Here again, I think the the CSB does a good job of capturing the idea a little bit better because there's actually a reference again to the secret in this verse. The CSB puts it like this. Then all the different coasts and islands of the nations will bow in worship to Him each in its own place. Now, I want you to notice what is being described here. The seacoast of the Philistines was said to become the possession of the remnant of Judah in verse 7. But here, all of the seacoasts, the distant seacoast, the islands of all of the nations, the furthest reaches of the earth will become places where Yahweh, the God of Israel, is worshipped. He worshipped from these very places. In these very places. People will not have to travel across the sea or across distant lands to come to Jerusalem and to worship the Lord there in His temple in accordance with the Old Covenant law. No, what will happen is that they will rightly be worshiping God in and from their own lands. So that this universal worship of God takes place as a consequence of judgment coming upon all nations and all false gods. It comes as a consequence of God terrifying the peoples and bringing them and bringing upon them a judgment on the level of Sodom and Gomorrah. Or to quote one of my favorite authors and my advisor, Jim Hamilton, God will receive glory in salvation through judgment. His salvation 
comes through an act of judgment. This is the pattern of God's works all throughout the Bible. He brings about salvation through an act of judgment. And in that act of judgment and in that salvation, He is glorified and worshipped in it. I want you to think with me for a moment just about our own salvation. How is it that we, people from the nations, from the seacoast, if you will, how is it that we are saved? We are saved through an act of judgment. We are saved only because of an act of judgment. God pours out His judgment on our sins upon the Son of God at the cross. And we, by believing in the Son and submitting to the Son, are saved through that act of judgment. And we glorify Him because of it. Or you can think all the way back to the beginning chapters of the book of Genesis and the flood that comes upon the whole world. This is an act of judgment that destroys that former creation. And yet, through that judgment comes salvation. Noah and his family brings about this new creation wherein God will continue His works of redemption. Or you can go back even further to chapter 3 when the curse came upon the world because of the sin of Adam and Eve. And in the midst of that judgment, what does God do? He gives a promise of salvation to come. The very woman who is now facing the judgment of God, from her will come an offspring who will crush the head of the serpent. This is the pattern all throughout Scripture. God brings judgment, and through that judgment comes salvation, and He's glorified and praised in it. And in a similar way, Zephaniah promises a day to come when God's judgment will be poured out on all the earth. And yet it is that very act of judgment that brings about a day when the nations will be worshiping Him from all over the world. Now, the Bible does not leave us in the dark as to how all of these promises play out. There is a very real sense in which these promises have already begun to be fulfilled. And there's a sense sense in which they are still not yet. We are still awaiting their final fulfillment. So certainly we can think, for example, of the Gospel. We can think of the work of Christ and the early church. And we see these things beginning to come to fruition. Jesus Christ Himself, of course, was a descendant of Judah according to the flesh. And therefore, He is part of the remnant. He is the remnant of the remnant. He is the true Israelite. The one to whom all of Israel's history was ultimately pointing. And His disciples, the apostles, and the earliest church, of course, was made up 
primarily not of Gentiles, but of Jews. A believing remnant of God's people. And in obedience to the command of their risen king, they went out into the world among the nations, proclaiming the Gospel and calling people from all of the nations and from the seacoast and from the island of Crete, calling the Cretans, calling the Philistines, if you will, to repent and believe the Gospel and to submit themselves to the King of Israel. And as that Gospel went forth, and as it continues to go forth to this very day, when we who are from the nations believe in the Gospel of Christ, what is it that we are doing? We are submitting ourselves to the remnant of Judah. We are submitting ourselves to the teachings of the apostles and Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone of the church. We are becoming and offering ourselves as the possession of the people of Judah led by her great King, Jesus Christ. In fact, we are called explicitly in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, we're called there a chosen race and a royal priesthood, a holy nation and a people for His own possession that we may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. That we may worship Him and that we may announce His glory to all the peoples. We belong to the King of kings. And He owns all of our lives. And from our places. And from our own lands. What do we do? We worship Him. We gather together in the state of Kentucky, in the city of Bowling Green, to worship Him from our place and to worship Him alone. This is how these promises are at least in part beginning to be fulfilled even now. But yet, there is still a sense in which we await an even greater fulfillment. A fulfillment that follows a day of great wrath and judgment against all the nations. This happens ultimately. Ultimately, at the coming of the Lord in all of His power and glory. When He returns a second time to judge the earth, He will come, we are told in the book of Revelation, to strike down the rebellious nations with a rod of iron and He will dash them into pieces. But what follows then? What comes after then? What follows the judgment in the way that Zephaniah has depicted it here? A judgment coming upon the nations followed by what? What follows is a day where the kingdom of God is established fully and completely on earth. It is the day where the Lord will dwell in the midst of His people and where He will be a light to all the nations. And John tells us in Revelation 21 that the kings of the earth will bring their glory to the of God rules. 
I love also, there's another picture that we described of this, this very moment, this, this time that parallels Revelation 21 and, and Isaiah 19, where the once rebellious nations of Egypt and Assyria are transformed into worshipers of the Lord through God's judgment. We read in Isaiah chapter 19, verse 23 to 25, in that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria. A blessing in the midst of the earth whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, My people, and Assyria, the work of My hands, and Israel, My inheritance. What is described here is people from Egypt essentially taking a pilgrimage to Assyria. And of course, at the time, the only way to, to get to Assyria is that you've got to go through Israel. So they're going to Assyria. And they're going to worship God in Assyria. And as they go through Israel, Israel will also be a blessing to them. Why? Because they're coming into the very city of the Lamb of God. And they will bring their tribute. And they will bring their glory. And they will worship Him from there and from beyond. In other words, they will worship God all over the world. And as they go through Israel, they will worship Him there. And they will leave and worship Him elsewhere. It is a world, in other words, where all nations are brought fully and completely under the rule of God. It is a world where there is no more sin and no more cursed things will exist. It is a world of blessing and a world filled with the presence and glory of God. This, friends, is what Zephaniah is painting for us. What the Scriptures are painting for us. This is our ultimate hope. This is as Peter describes it. This is the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Just as even so long ago, this hope was to motivate the people of God to humble themselves then, to repent of their sins then, and trust in the Lord, so also are we to fix our eyes on this coming day. We are to live in light of the promises that are to be fulfilled. God will be the victor and God will receive all worship. We are to live with the certain knowledge that all sin and all ungodliness will be judged. And yet also that God will purify Himself a people from all the nations. And He will be worshipped in all the earth. And so friends, as, as believers, as Christians who hold on to these promises, friends, we are not 
to be a despondent and hopeless people. We are not to be those who are indeed looking around at all of the the chaos and the, the chaos that is in society and in culture and in the world at large. We're, we're not to be looking at all of the, the wars and the problems that are going on in the world as if these things will continue world without end. No, no, no. We hold on to the revelation of Christ. We hold on to the certain hope that God will establish His everlasting kingdom on earth. He will win. Satan will be defeated. Sin will be vanquished. And righteousness will reign. That's our hope. That's what we cling to. And that's what allows us to live in this world. Not in despair, but in hope. Amen. Let's go to the Lord and ask His blessings on His Word. Father, You have given us a knowledge of great things to come. And Lord, even as we see the very passage, these judgments that are to come upon all the nations, how sweet it is to know that in the midst of this judgment, You promise a day to come where even the nations will worship You. And Lord, we are grateful that that we as a people from among the nations, that You have been gracious to send the Gospel to us that we might hear it and that by Your grace we might believe it and receive it as that which is truly true. We are grateful, Lord, that we are now counted among the nations who worship You in each of our own places. But Lord, we are most especially anticipating that final day when we dwell in the midst of Your presence and we are able to behold You face to face. And so Lord, we pray for that day to come. We pray for the nations to be drawn to You for them to bow the knee to the King and for all worship and glory to be given to Him. And we ask this all in Jesus' name.